guys have a Bible ready? We're going to open up to Exodus chapter 20, where we will begin this evening. Exodus chapter 20, which of course is appropriate, being that these last roughly 10 weeks or so, maybe a little bit longer than that, since we took a couple of breaks, have been dealing with the section in the Catechism on the Ten Commandments. Oh, is that door locked? Oh, it should it be? Thanks. So Exodus chapter 20, and we'll begin with reading God's word tonight, and the passage that we'll be reading is the Tenth Commandment. So Exodus 20, verse 17. God's word says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That ends reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Now, that is that verse, that one verse is the answer that the Catechism gives to question 44, which that asks, what is the Tenth Commandment? And it just quotes that one verse verbatim. And so tonight we're going to be following the same pattern with this commandment that we have done with the previous ones, meaning that tonight the goal is to consider the commandment both positively and negatively. What is commanded in it and what is um, forbidden in it as well. So this commandment, uh, I'm really just looking to use question 85 and 86 as a guide for the most part because the 10th commandment is an all-encompassing commandment which causes us to consider much more than we could really even cover tonight. More on that in a moment. But for now, I want to just read question 85 and 86 they're on the note sheet. I didn't have time to make an actual outline this, uh, for this evening, but there's a note sheet that has the questions listed on them, um, and you can follow along with that if you like. So question 85 asks, what is required in the Tenth Commandment? The answer is the Tenth Commandment requires full contentment with our own condition, with a right and char- charitable frame of spirit toward our neighbor, and all that is his. And then question 86, what is forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment forbids all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbors and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his, his being our neighbors. So we need to remember that the Ten Commandments are a summary of God's moral law. The moral law is much more than these Ten Commandments or these Ten Words. If you think of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in which he expounded on the commandments, uh, there, there we see that there's much more going on than just what's on the surface in Exodus chapter 20 and I think also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Or if you're familiar with the Westminster Larger Catechism, they do a really great job of biblically identifying all of the other sins that would generally be caught under the, the, the headings of the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Maybe not everything, but I mean they are they're, they're very thorough, they're very helpful. And truthfully, all unrighteousness all lawlessness, every sin that any man, that a man could do is summarized here in these Ten Commandments. God's moral law is a reflection of his holy character. It gives us creatures, uh, beings that are created by God, that is, a, a picture of the divine nature of God that we can comprehend. They show us our sins. In God's sovereign and providential working, they serve to restrain evil in the world. And for the one who has been transformed by the grace of God, They instruct us on how it is that we can live in a way that is pleasing and glorifying God in light of his righteousness. But but this tenth commandment is somewhat unique, especially in consideration of the rest. 
Uh, we, even if you look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, for example, it's exactly the same as it is here in the Baptist Catechism or the Westminster Shorter Catechism, whereas all the other nine commandments go on these greater detail lists. It's exactly the same as it is in the Shorter Catechism. Part of that, I think, has to do with the reality that this is perhaps the most convicting of the commandments. Even if it doesn't seem to be so as of me just saying that right now, hopefully it will make more sense as we go on, but what we should know is that this commandment gets at the issue of our motives. It's directed at our desires, and disordered desires are at the root of every sin. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, which is especially addressing the idols that we create in our hearts, and the last commandment, act as these bookends to God's holy standard. The first commandment concerns an internal posture that we have toward God, and the last commandment is opposed to an inner attitude of self-interest that influences and precipitates actions that violate one of the other commandments. The last commandment is a root sin. Covetousness stands at the root of every sin and is predisposed in the breaking of the rest of the commandments. Let me explain this in a couple of ways. Think of the Apostle Paul before he was converted. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was confident that his obedience to God's law had earned him a place in paradise, in heaven. Think of the parable of the Pharisee and the publican and how they prayed differently. That was how the Pharisees in general taught and thought. He was confident that he himself was righteous and if he was to size everyone else up around him, uh, he would look down at those around him and he would think to himself that they weren't as righteous as he was. And outwardly, he may even be correct. But notice the change that is described in, in Romans chapter 7. If you want to look in Romans 7, Romans should be easy to find. The sixth book in the New Testament. Romans 7, 7 through 12. There he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin... But when the, excuse me, but when the commandment came... Sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteousness and good. So what, he, what he says is this. He says, I was overwhelmed by the presence of sin in my own heart when I understood what it, what it meant that I was not supposed to covet. See, here was this man who thought that he was righteous good enough to buy his own way into heaven. And it was, and he gets this, when he truly meets the Lord, he's just overcome. It's like a man who goes to the doctor and he believes himself to be fully healthy and he finds out that his body is filled with cancer. What, what does he do at that point? So the apostle says, I came to realize that the presence of sin was all throughout me. And it wasn't just the presence of sin that has him captivated here. He was also amazed at the strength of, this, of sin. He saw sin in his heart, and rather than running away from it, rather than repenting of it, there's this desire in him to not even repent of it. 
And suddenly, you know, he's, he's as if he finds in his heart this desire to covet. And he doesn't want to give up his covetousness. He wants to be more covetous than he had before even. And he's overwhelmed to see something inside of himself that when he thought he was right with God, but it turns out in fact he's not. To see this pushback that was in his heart that even made him want to sin even more. And the law is what showed him this. And the reason for that is because covetousness is a root sin. It's related to everything else. Every sin begins in the heart or in the mind. A couple of passages. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. And those springs, because of the fall of Adam, are polluted springs, are they not? Uh, they are sinful springs. Matthew 12.34-35 Jesus is dealing with Pharisees. And he says, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Said differently, we sin because we are sinners. We don't so much sin and then become a sinner, but we sin because we are sinners, having inherited guilt from Adam at the fall. And the Tenth Commandment has an immediate relationship to how we violate the other Ten Commandments. So the commandment, do not covet, shows us that obedience to all the other commands begins in the heart. The command shows us that true obedience is not complete without heart obedience. It can't just be outward. This commandment shows us that the Ten Commandments are not only about loving God, and they're not only about loving neighbor outwardly, tangibly and practically, they're also about how our heart is before the Lord. And that's especially, especially what Jesus is going after in the Sermon on the Mount. Now they, there's an inward focus about them. None of the commandments can be merely kept outward. They must be kept from the heart, from a heart that has been made alive in Christ. Now they are even broken from the heart. And this important tenth commandment even has a cascading effect in sin meaning that it leads to more and more sin. Plus also, it's a sin that often escapes us. Like it's kind of like it does the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, both of which will attempt to show this evening. So what I want to do is summarize the sin of covetousness under two basic headings. First of all, the negative prohibition, you must not covet. And secondly, the positive encouragement, you must be content. So I'm flipping the orders, if you're aware of the text, I'm flipping the order of those two questions. We're going on 86 first and 85 next. So first off, and I'm not going to hit the details in those catechism questions because again, this is a bigger topic. And we'd have to deal with those questions individually for the time's sake, if that was the case. So first off, you must not covet. Would be helpful to define what coveting is, I think. I have to say it simplistically, covetousness means to desire, to set one's heart upon something, or to crave something. That's what covet means. But especially, the idea, the idea that we have communicated in the 10th commandment is an inordinate desire. A kind of craving that lacks love. Now, that's not to say that all craving of something is sin. There, is, there are holy and good desires. Let me give you just a few of them. Psalm 42, 1-2. As a deer, this is David, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Here is a, a holy longing, a holy desire for God himself. David wants to enter into communion with him. 
And there's a panting after God himself. Well, is that a sinful desire? Is that a good desire? It's good. It's, it's holy. Or how about the parable of the prodigal son? When the young man begins to come to his senses, and he realizes how he has sinned against his father, he's at a very low place in his life, he's with the pigs. The Bible says that he craved, he coveted after the pods that were being eaten by the pigs, because he was so hungry that he longed just for something. So, a starving man longs for food, would that be sinful? No. That is, of course not. To, to eat, to, to be, not be starving is a good desire. Jesus told his apostles that a, as Passover was approaching, and the same night that his betrayal was also approaching, he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Again, nothing sinful in that. Or what about when Jesus calls a man to the gospel ministry? Should a man serve as an elder, an overseer, a pastor, if he doesn't desire to do it? Of course not. The calling is affirmed in someone's life by the church, by others that are around him, in cooperation with the desire of the individual to do it. And we would think the desire is given to him from the Lord. 2 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now there's even an appropriate longing and desire between a man and a woman in marriage. And that is especially the case in, because the marriage covenant is a picture of an allegory or an allegory of the loving covenant that God is in with his elect. And so Song of Solomon 7.10, the, the Shulamite bride says, I am my beloved and his desire is for me. Or in other words, we are Christ and he actually desires us. The gospel is, is so rich. Further, the desire to acquire is, is not wrong. Uh, private property, the accumulation of wealth and the advancement, life and liberty within a society, the taking of a wife even, or a husband, these are all essential to fulfilling the creation or the cultural mandate of Genesis 1-8. Go forth and be fruitful. Those aren't bad things. So really, at the same time, saying all these things that are good, we want to be clear that the Tenth Commandment is not some sort of misnomer. It's there for a very good reason. And that's because there are bad desires that exist. There are inordinate desires that exist. There are unholy desires according to the Word of God. And really it comes down to two things. First, covetous, covetousness is a desire for unlawful things. And then secondly, covetousness is an intemperate or an inordinate desire for lawful things. It's a desire for unlawful things or it's an inordinate desire for lawful things. Let's consider each of those in turn. First, covetousness is a desire for unlawful things, making it a sinful desire then, right? If we desire something that's unlawful, that's sinful desire. In the scriptures, um, God himself has forbidden certain things and told us, you're not to do this, you're not to do that, keep your hands off this, don't go near that, and this is for your good, but this is not for you. And yet, covetousness is, is a desire to have the forbidden fruit as it were. Of the things that God tells us we cannot have. And yet, we long for them. We long for those things that God says we shouldn't have. The Christian, even, in his flesh, longs for things that God says we should not have. As a matter of fact, before humanity was even, properly speaking, recognized as fallen, we see covetousness in play. Let's look at Genesis 3. Covetousness 
is how sin entered the world. Covetousness is how Adam's transgression as our covenant head came to be. There was one tree in the garden that was off limits. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every other plant, every other tree was a yes from God. You can enjoy these. You can have liberty to eat of these trees. There is one tree that you can't eat from. Of course, then you know the devil comes and he whispers in Eve's ear, and what he says is basically, God lied to you. God told you that when you eat of this tree, you would die. But he's actually he's holding something back from you because he knows that when you eat of it, you're actually going to be just like he is. You're, you're going to live, and he's he's trying to hold that back from you. He's 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 trying to not have you be equal with him. And you know that famous phrase: Did did God actually say that was the serpent's line? That was his way of deceiving. That is what's very prevalent today with people when it comes to God's word. Did God really say? this and that. But you see, doubt is dangerous. Doubting God's word is deadly. And so, verse 6 of Genesis 3 says, So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to her eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Then she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. So, it started with covetous in the heart. It, she was intrigued by the seat. It was desirable in her eyes. And then she began to act upon those desires. Of the sinful desires that were growing there. Sinful desire is what lies behind every sin, ultimately. Yeah. James, James chapter 1. I know you probably know this text very well, but you want to turn there and look and see. James chapter 1, towards the very end of your New Testament. He did beat me. <laughs> Our brother uh, Steve sent us a funny text this morning about mm-hmm. pastors asking their congregants to turn to um, obscure places, places in the Bible that you're not familiar with, and then not, not giving them any time to get there. So you have plenty of time to get to James, and it's really fast if you do it on your phone. So, James 1, 13-16. Uh, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. And this is one of those wonderful reminders that God only does his holy will when people want to say those weird things to you, like, well, can God make a rock that's so big that even he can't carry it? This is a reminder. <laughs> this is, this is, uh, <laughs> oh, you did? But look at what it goes on to say here. Um, For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So our sinful desires are what drive us to sin, and then that sin then leads to death. And it comes from within. So here's the thing. What James is saying essentially is this. You sin because you want to. You sin because you desire to. Same for me. It's not because of our upbringing. It's not because of our circumstances. It's because we desire it. 
It's our hearts that are prone to covet, to desire what we shouldn't. And so it's easy to see how this lies behind things like stealing, for example. It's obvious that before a man can become a thief, he has to see something that he wants. And he desires it, and even though it's not his, and he acts to take it. And it's obvious that this then also lies behind all fornication and adultery. Except for rather it being a thing, it's a person that's being desired, and he goes after it. And often it has this cascading effect in our lives. It, it, it is behind an initial sin that leads to more sin and more sin. Think of David, King David, and his adultery with Bathsheba. It began when he saw her bathing. He's on his roof, she's on her roof, and he began to desire her. He coveted another man's wife in his heart. It was a violation of the tenth commandment that led him in the next place to steal someone who did not belong to him. He sent his guards over to go to bring her back to him. In violation of the eighth commandment. Then he committed adultery with her, which was a violation of the seventh commandment. And then she became pregnant. He wanted to deceive her husband, Uriah, to cover up the sin. So that was a violation of the ninth commandment. You shall not lie. You shall not bear false witness. And when that did not work, what did he do? He killed her. Violated the sixth commandment. And when, and when that happened, later on we would read, because of it, the, the surrounding nations blasphemed God. They took his name in vain when they heard about the evilness happening in, in Israel. And so the third commandment was trampled underfoot. Take another example, Solomon. The Bible says Solomon loved many women. Solomon had a thousand women, well, 700 wives and 300 concubines. And because it says that he loved many women, it's obvious that there was a sinful desire behind it. Because what is the right holy desire in a situation between a man and a woman? It's one man and one woman. So basically, what he's trying to do is he's trying to sanctify his lust by technically being married to all these people. But the Bible itself tells us from the very beginning that it's God's intention that only marriage should be only between one man and one woman. Polygamy, and what's known as polyandry, is a perversion of God's created design, and God warned it is lost. But if the kings go after many wives, those wives will turn their heads towards idols. And that's exactly what happened in the life of Solomon. So he wasn't content with one woman, and maybe we could speculate that there was political gain or something in there, but that's a lot of political gain. <laughs> if that's what he was thinking. Absolutely. And before you know it, he's not content with one God either. And suddenly he's going after the gods of the Canaanites. He's violated the last commandment all the way back to the first commandment. It shouldn't surprise us popular in our day to affirm homosexuality and all kinds of gender dysphoria as being completely normal. Even within the church, you see more and more professing Christians taking the stance, taking the cue from the world, to be honest. Well, this is a form of covetousness. Because form of what? Covetousness. Because it's discontentment with the created order. It's according to Romans chapter 1. It's leaving the natural youth of the woman. Men burning with lust. And in their burning, their lust turns them to other men. Same thing with women. This kind of thing happens, and well, of course we would say that God gave them over to it as we read in Romans 1, but it happens through their desires. Poisoning natural desire. It's not only against God's laws, it's even against the created order itself. But again, what you see happening behind it is covetousness. It's behind all of it. It's at the root, these disordered desires. Second thing now, in considering what is covetousness, covetousness is an intemperate or inordinate desire for lawful things. 
Uh, we see this in the area of Christian liberties, for example. And you must be aware of the, the subtle deception to use Christian liberty as a cloak for our own vices. Uh, meaning, just because we have liberty and freedom as Christians doesn't mean that it's necessarily what we should do in practice. And each Christian has to figure that out for themselves. That's, that's the point of Christian liberty. I'm not the one who can tell you what your liberty is in these events, just like you can't tell me what my liberty is either. Mm-hmm. I can't evaluate it for you. Uh, there are things which may be a help to one brother or sister, and that same thing may be a hindrance to another. In each of those cases, we have to work through those things. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses this very principle because we're never allowed to, what we're never allowed to do, even with legitimate practical liberty, is we're never permitted, permitted to throw off all self-restraint, all self-control, and not be moderate and temperate. Even in light of liberty, you know, we still must exhibit self-control. And so 1 Corinthians 6, 12, and 13, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are, law- are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And what he's saying is that even in my liberty, even in my freedom, I'll control my liberty. They won't control me. And so self-control is a virtue. He didn't forget that. And then he goes on to say, food for the stomach and stomach for food. But God will destroy both of them. Well, let's just go through several scenarios of Christian liberty. I learned today the Graves girls don't like bacon. But because of Christian liberty, in light of food, we can eat bacon. We can eat pork. Eating food sacrificed to idols even, according to to the New Testament is, is okay. These are Christian liberties in so much as it's not a stumbling block for you, it's not a stumbling block for anyone else around you. It's perfectly legitimate, so you can enjoy bacon, actually, is what I wanted to say. <laughs> but what is gluttony? Gluttony is the inability to control myself by the consumption of those things. <laughs> and it's too much of a good thing. Matter of fact, the Bible itself compares gluttony to drunkenness and looks at it as twin sins. One is a lack of control regarding food, the other a lack of control regarding drink. Both gluttony, but a gluttony is this inability to control. Same thing with drunkenness. So why can Paul say, uh, this is why Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of the Lord. Uh, drinking alcohol in moderation, so long as it's not something controlling for you or someone else, if your conscience has liberty in it, there's freedom to enjoy alcohol. Mm-hmm. It, in moderation, right? We're not getting drunk. But if it causes someone else to stumble, then it is, as, or if it causes, or if you begin to be intemperate or inordinate, or inordinate with your use of alcohol, then it is, as a matter of fact, such a great sin that the Bible says that a U.S. drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God. He shows he doesn't know the Lord. Covetousness, in other words, has dominated that man. So we just have to be careful with those things. Or, or what about being rich? the acquiring of much wealth. Is it a sin to be rich? We have, we have many godly saints in the Bible who were rich. Take, for instance, Job, or Abraham, or Joseph of Arimathea, who petitioned the Romans for the body of Jesus, who put the body of our Lord Jesus in his tomb, or Joseph under Pharaoh's rule. These were, these were rich people. So it's not sinful to be rich. The, the sin is to love riches. The sin is to love money as an end-all, as a path to happiness. The sin is to be in love with material possessions. And the difficulty of it is that it's hard to own things without those things owning you in turn at some level. To even desire good things wrongly 
is to covet. Uh, Jesus himself told us that it's impossible for the love of God and love of money to dwell in the same heart. One will exclude the other. We, we can't serve two masters. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul actually tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. They are cut off. No inheritance with Christ. And coveting, whether it is something unlawful or an inordinate desire for something that is lawful, it's at its heart idolatry. You're attempting to dethrone the Lord in some capacity. And then there's that connection of all the Ten Commandments together. Here's a man violating the Tenth Commandment, and he's violating the First Commandment as well. He has other gods before him, and we have an example of someone like that in the book of Mark, chapter 10. If you wanted to turn there. Who's, uh, does anybody know who's in Mark, chapter 10? The rich young ruler. Mark 10, I've, I've heard this said before, and I, I would agree that it's true. But I've heard that the rich young ruler would be like a modern evangelist dream. Uh, think of this man. He comes running, and he falls on his face, and he says, what good thing must I do to be saved? We're in the clinic on Friday, and you know people don't want to have that conversation with us. We have to have that conversation with them. We have to start it. But here comes this man running up to Jesus, and he asks him that. And what would happen in the modern church if that happened? In many modern churches today, he would be immediately accepted. <laughs> Place rise in ministry. He'd be like a quote, community group leader, a city group leader, or something like that in short time. He's clean cut. He's moral. He's a person of some influence and power. And the modern church would say, well, just pray this prayer, and if you're sincere, sign this card, and we'll have you with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd come to the church, and he'd probably be a very faithful church member. And he would live like that, and then at the end of his life, he'd go to hell, being self-deceived. Sadly, that's the fruit of much of modern evangelism and church ministry today. But when he came to Jesus, and he put this question before Jesus, and Jesus put before him the cost of discipleship, this man went away. He went away heavy-hearted. But let's see how Jesus counseled him. So this is verse 17 in Mark 10. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus first challenges him with who he is. And so Jesus says to him, verse 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And of course, you know, what he was saying was true. Jesus is good. But what he was challenging him was, with was, Do you realize what you're saying? But then... He does this. He does something really weird to some. He uses the Ten Commandments in evangelism. Go figure. <laughs> it's actually a pretty popular technique. You know, I see my brother John do it weekly almost every Friday. So I, it, this is the right thing to do. Verse 19, Jesus says to him, but again, to many in the modern church, this is just, why would Jesus do this? Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud honor your father and your mother. But note, he's quoting the second table of the law about our love for our fellow man. 
He quotes all of them except for one. Which one does he not quote? Ten commandments. <laughs> the one about <coughs> he's not going to quote it directly, but he's saving. He's about to apply that he's about to drive home its righteous requirement in just a moment. So verse 20, the rich young ruler responds, says to him, Teacher, I've done all these things from my youth. Obviously a very naive young man. He didn't understand the true condition of his heart, although probably externally there's a lot of truth in what he's saying. This was a moral guy. Dude was clean cut. He kept his nose out of trouble. Then Jesus looking at him, and this is important, he loves him. Verse 21. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, and so what he's about to say next, though it sounds harsh, but remember what motivates it, it's love for his soul. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor so that you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And disheartened by the sayings, this rich young ruler, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. We read at the end of verse 22. So what was Jesus confronting him about? His covetousness there at the end, which was an idol in his heart. He knew that for all of this man's moral uprightness, his heart was still filled with idolatry. And Jesus was basically saying that you've got to repent of your idolatry to come to me. His covetousness was unknown to him. He didn't understand the law. He was like Paul in Romans, as Paul was describing the situation in Romans 7. And there's a cost for discipleship. Though that cost is not the same for every person, costly for all of us. Jesus paid the ultimate cost. But it costs different things for different people. Take, for instance, a child growing up in a Christian home. Coming to Christ doesn't necessarily cost you to be estranged from your family. Hopefully not. That'd be really weird. But if you grew up in a Muslim home, in that context, it might cost you that. It might even cost your life and get you put out of the family. The cost is higher in that sense for a person in that context. Or if a young lady was involved in fornication and she lived in her apartment with her boyfriend and she comes to faith in Christ, repentance of her sin would mean that she has to leave that living situation. She has to move out and trust the Lord will take care of her. Um, a homosexual can be saved, but they must break off their homosexuality. They can't be a homosexual and a Christian at the same time. So they've got to break off that relationship so others would affirm them and encourage them in their sin. There's a cost for everyone. There's a cross that we all must bear. I once heard a story, it's kind of like a, a modern parable, where a man is considering his cost. He's considering his own cross that he has to bear. And Jesus allows him into this secret room where it has all these different crosses. And he allows him to look at all the different crosses, and he gives him the option. He says, you know, because I know I'm, I'm a tender, I'm a compassionate and merciful God, and if this cross is too much for you to bear, we'll take a look at all these other crosses in here. And you can choose one that you like. And so this man goes through the room, and he explores all of its corners, and he sees the crosses, some really big ones, there's smaller ones, there's some that are girthy, some that are really thin. And then he sees one, a small, little tiny one in the corner of the room. And so he goes back and he finds Jesus and he says, Jesus, I found the cross that I want. I want to get rid of mine and I want this one over here. And Jesus tells him, well, actually, son, that is the cross that you came in here with. So we don't always know what cost, what cross we're going to have to bear, but we all have a cross. And Christ is wise. He knows what our limitations are. He knows how to save us and how to redeem us. Well, even here for this rich young ruler, his riches had gripped his heart. This was too much for him. He couldn't give up his stuff and sell it. So Jesus says to him, you know, sell everything you have. He knows his heart. Tear down your idols. 
not going to tolerate any rivals to my lordship. And then you come and follow me. And he tells him, you've got treasures here on earth, but they're nothing. What you should desire is treasure in heaven. And the man goes away sorrowful. And the thing that we're going to understand here is that for all of his love of riches, he loved his riches more than he loved his own soul. And he loved his riches really more than he loved Christ. And Jesus is demanding of him in love that you must repent of your covetousness and of your idolatry. Okay? That's the negative side. That's, that's what's forbidden. Those types of things are forbidden in this command. But what does the text commandment require? So positively then, you must be content. Hebrews chapter 13, the writer of, of Hebrews is applying to us the tenth commandment. By the way, I recognize that saying, don't covet, and then saying you must be content is not easy or not any less convicting. But verse 5 in Hebrews 13, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see how good that is, Christian. What stumbles men and women more than wealth and the comfort it brings. But, Christian, you have the greatest treasure anyone could ever have on the face of the earth. Union with Christ. The Holy Spirit of God living in you and dwelling you, helping you and guiding you into all truth. God said to Abraham, and Nick actually mentioned this this morning, uh, do not be afraid. I am your shield. Your exceedingly great reward. I'm the God. God himself is Abraham's inheritance. There's a, there's a ghost ship song called Adoption that speaks about the blessing of adoption in, in, the, in the song. And he contemplates in it his knowledge of God before he was saved. And there's a line where he says, you adopted me in and you gave me a home. And then elsewhere he said that he didn't know that God was a rich man, that he was a king. And the point being, if you have God, if you've got God in his word, you're the richest person. You're one of the richest people on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Heavenly blessings and riches are not even comparable, really, to earthly ones. So, so if I have God, I can be content. Because even if I'm poor and yet know God, then I'm rich and, and great. Better that than to be rich and good than bankrupt and great, right? But the world is deceived in that regard. Constantly. Most are chasing after riches. Well, that's a fool's errand, isn't it? At one point, uh, J.D. Rockefeller, who was at the time one of the richest people in the world, probably the most wealthy person in the United States, he was asked, how much money does it take for someone, for you to, for a person to be happy? And his answer was, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. A man who has wealth that we can only dream of, for the most part, couldn't be satisfied. Robert Skidelsky and his brother Edward, in their book, on, quote, money and a good life, said, experience has taught us that material wants know no natural bounds, that they will expand without end unless we consciously restrain them. Well, they're correct about that, but the Kodelsky brothers don't write from a Christian point of view, but from a philosophical one that must rob from Christian ethics. And they end up falling short in their estimation of man's ability to do what's right. Uh, Our true source of freedom, actually, is found in contentment. And contentment finds its source in God, but it also finds its source in God's sovereign rule over creation. Turn with me to Philippians 4. 
Philippians 4, verse 10 through 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians 4. Did I beat you that time? Nope. Yeah, no, okay. What verse, though? 10. What? You beat me there. Okay, so the Apostle Paul here. I, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now, at length, you have received your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what he's speaking of in this context is that he was actually suffering financially. And he was struggling to the point that, that he was in great distress. Even you know, all these churches that the Apostle Paul planted, Philippi had a unique role in supporting him. If you look down to 15 and 17, he talks there about this unique role that the church of Philippi had in supporting Paul in his work of ministry. But nonetheless, you know, he, he's expressing here how he struggled. He had financial woes and problems. Well, then the gift came from the church in Philippi, and that relieved his need. So next we read in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, place, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what is the secret to this? Was it just that the apostle was a solid theologian and his intellect took him through it? Was it his own willpower and his strength? Was it his ability to consciously restrain himself like the Skidelsky brothers think? No. Verse 13 tells us what is needed. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not your sports slogan verse, right? It's by abiding in the Lord. He gives us grace. He gives us strength to endure through every single trial. And therefore, because of this, you know, I know God's in charge, and I trust his heart, I trust his will. Whatever circumstances I find myself in, I can be content. Not in our own strength, but in Christ. The problem, of course, is, is that we're often led by our flesh. Sometimes, you know, we can be, we can be terrible Calvinists. The terrible confessors of the Reformed faith are just simply the faith. We, we really do believe God is controlling the whole universe, he's ruling the universe, that he is sovereign, but how often do we violate you know, Philippians 2.14? Look back there if you don't know that verse. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. It goes on to say, that we have to stand out from the world when we live like that. But sometimes we do everything with grumbling and disputing. We believe that God rules the universe, but we aren't always happy about the way that he's ruling. I mean, do you find, if you're honest, that it is true in your own heart, in your own life, that you wish he would do things the way that you think he should do them? And yet he doesn't consult you. He doesn't call you in the morning and ask you, how it is that he should ordain things in your life. Mm. Then, here's the Apostle Paul, learning to be content, because he knew God had everything under control, and he, God, knows what's best, and therefore he could trust him through every circumstance. Two applications I wanted to make, and then we'll go to our, we'll pray, we'll go to our question comment time. First is this, has the Holy Spirit laid bare the covetousness of your heart this evening for anyone that's here? Perhaps you're like the rich young ruler, that outwardly, you know, you're moral, but inwardly you have a heart full of idolatry. Has he shown you, like how he did the Apostle Paul, that you thought you were righteous, 
and suddenly found himself actually bankrupt. It's because the Tenth Commandment hits you. Well, it's good news if you're lost in covetousness, man or woman or boy or girl. The good news is that Jesus died to save covetous people. In fact, I want to show you a very tangible example of this in Luke chapter 19. I love this story, the story of Zacchaeus. We all know the story of that short little man, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Luke 19. Verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now, why would the tax collectors be rich? And the reason they're rich is because they were extortioners. Extortioners working for the Roman government. And, and the Jews viewed them as traitors to the nation for how they acted. So this would work like this. They would have a list of what taxes the people owed. And they would, you know, let's say a person owes $1,000. So basically they would say, hey, listen to me. Um, you owe $1,500, and I'm going to take it from you. And if you dispute this, here's a Roman soldier that's right over here who's ready to throw you in jail. They'll throw you in prison. And so if they gave the $1,500, well, they would keep $500 for themselves, and they would then pay the rest off to Rome, the $1,000 to Rome. So they were growing rich at the impoverishment of their countrymen. And that's how Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, had gained his wealth. And then we see that he was seeking out Jesus in verse 3. But he could not because of a crowd, for he was of short stature. So he's never met Jesus, obviously, right? But he wants to see who he is. So he ran ahead and he climbs up this sycamore tree so he could see him when he was going to pass through that way. And I love what happens next at verse 5. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now think about this. Jesus has never met this man. But as soon as he sees him, he knows his name. And he calls to him. And I'll submit to you as the context will bear this out as well. We'll see in just a moment. That it wasn't this chief tax collector who was seeking after Jesus. But it was Jesus who was seeking him. He knew his acts and the reason he knew his name is because he knows his sheep by name. Because he was one of those who God himself had given to Jesus. He's one of his elect. And I love how Jesus invites himself and all of his apostles into Zacchaeus' house. You're going to get to fix supper for everyone. And hopefully the missus is very generous and understanding. So verse 6. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they, these other people who are here watching this, saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You know what they're thinking, right? Saying, look, he's a, Jesus is associated with this traitor, that turncoat. And then verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Completely different response from the rich young ruler, right? It's just the opposite. He goes beyond that as a matter of fact. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to restore to those that I have taken from. I'm going to bring restitution to the ones that I've stolen from by giving them four times as much back as I took. And I'm going to give half my goods to the poor. And what does Jesus say? 
so much different than the rich young ruler. And notice the response of Jesus is, is different in this case as well, verse 9. And Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house. He also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. In other words, it wasn't because of the case's works, but the case's works proved that he was repentant. He had turned away from his idolatry, from his covetousness, and now he was bearing fruit. And again, it was verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek to save that which was lost. Again, it tells us that it wasn't the case that he was seeking after Jesus, it was Jesus seeking after him. And he found him. He always finds those that he seeks after. Of course he does. And he saved him as well. If God would save Zacchaeus, how come I say his name? How do you guys say his name? Zacchaeus. I just said it you know, each, each of those ways like 15 different times. So, if God could save a man like him, like Zacchaeus. <laughs> Very good. If God could save a man like Levi, who was also a tax collector, who then became an apostle. Levi. <laughs> you. If God could save someone like the Apostle Paul, who was a murderer of Christians before he met Jesus, if Jesus could save these men, why can't he save you? And so if you're covetous in your if you're covetous in your heart, obey the Lord by repenting of your covetousness covetousness and recognize that Jesus alone is Lord and Savior and follow after him. Mm-hmm. Jesus said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? yet lose his soul. Covetousness ruins us. As you know, Jim Elliot famously said, he's not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. The second application is this. If you're hearing this, and you are a child of God already, and you know, and you know the Lord, and it's likely there's an element of conviction you're feeling. I feel it too, and I had to teach it, because we recognize that the presence of covetousness is still inside of us. But there's something we need to know with this commandment, which I touched on a little bit already. The last commandment is what we call a root sin. And it's therefore very helpful to understand it as we seek to mortify, as we seek, as we seek to put to death the sins in our life that remain by grace through faith, as Romans 8 instructs us to do. If you've ever done any weeding, you should know what I'm talking about. Um, because weeds, seem seemingly like sin, honestly, are not easy to kill. Most weeds, when you go to pull them up, they break at the roots, leaving the roots in the ground, getting stronger and growing deeper, only to provide the fruit or the stalk of that weed again very soon. If you want to kill a weed, what do you need to do? Use <laughs> some, some poison, right? <laughs> you need to get at the root. The root is what needs to be killed. And from experience, I tell you that when you seek by grace to have victory over sin in your life, addressing the fruit will not give you lasting results. It may provide some relief for a while, but eventually, if that root is not killed, it will come back, either as the same sin or a different sin with the same root issue. And covetousness, which is idolatry, is in some way or form at the root of most or of, or of every other commandment breaking. It's at the heart of our transgression, or at the very least, it reminds us that sin starts within us. And since you're a Christian, You've been given the means to have victory in these kinds of situations. And it's based on who Christ is and what it is that Christ has done. Because he bore the wrath we deserve on the cross. Because his holy and righteous life represents us. Because he is living to make intercession for us. Because he is exalted and promises to come again. And because he has given to us all whom he saved, his spirit. 
so that we can put sin to death. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But the Apostle isn't saying here that our, it's our works that save us. But what he's simply saying is that the normal response of the one who is saved, people who are saved because they have been saved, don't live according to the flesh. Of course, we still sin. And that's why the second half of that verse implies even, that when we sin, because we've already been saved and given the Spirit, we seek to put to death the deeds of the body. And my encouragement to you, friends, is to look for the root. To look for the root. The tenth commandment reminds us of that. And so let's pray, and then we'll accept any questions. Now, Father, we do thank you for your law. And we thank you that it convicts us still, Lord. I no, Please, oh Lord, let us never get to a place of not being convicted. Uh, help teach us to hate our sin and teach us and remind us of your complete and perfect redemption that you have accomplished and applied to us in Christ, all for your glory's sake. We thank you for letting us have time to worship you together tonight, and we pray that you would always guide us and help us, Lord, to, to be content. We need grace to be able to be content. And so remind us that you are the sovereign God and that your will is the best thing that can always happen. So we give you all glory and honor, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you guys have any questions or comments, I'll do my best to try to address those. One second, let me pause this. Okay. Yeah, so any, if I could try to clarify anything or any questions. Yeah, it almost seems like a judicial hardening, even, you know? Yeah, and that brother, I still talk to him here and there, and I know uh, he's still going to church, still his family's over in North Creek now. But uh, it's just hard, man, to see. There's people understand the, the devastation of the church imploding. There's real people involved, right? So I think we need to beg the Lord prayer of Indians, just amongst our loved ones. Okay. Praise the Lord.
Okay. So close. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get out of here. <laughs> he, said, he said that to somebody else, but nobody, nobody was saying anything. Go <laughs> ahead, John. Go ahead. I got a whole list here, but I ain't going to touch it all. Right. Captain, I, we were already worn out just thinking about you talking. Wow. You know it's being recorded, right? <laughs> I can't remember the name you of You made the crumbs. And it just drives me crazy. Well, he made more than he doing. But when you talked about the part, it hit me really hard about God's sovereignty and how we're pretty poor Catholics at times, right? We say we champion sovereignty. Oh, we complain about situations we're in, yeah. Yeah, complaining and grumbling, right? Um, I just got through finishing. I'm almost done with numbers. And as I've been going through it, whenever I get to chapter 21, I'm like, okay, Lord, deal with me on this because I'm not complaining. It got wiped out, you know, the Israelites for complaining, right? Oh, yeah. And yet we think. God is immutable, right? It's like we take God and play with his grace so much, but it just, I can't remember who said this quote. He said the most offensive doctrine in all of the Bible is the sovereignty of God. And Sprawl, maybe? No, nah, it wasn't Sprawl. I'll find it. Stupid Apple is even one of my photos of my favorite mm-hmm. ones. I gotta find it. But, uh, I think I've heard Bible. something like that from him. I'm sure. It was probably wild, though, but you think about that. Like, this whole thing has been going on with my wife, and just with work sometimes. Sometimes, I know in my own heart, although it doesn't come out of my mouth, thank God. But it's almost like you can just picture Job's trial. She said, you know, you're still dealing with all this curse God was facing. Die, right? Yeah. It's like, that's in our hearts at times. And even when it comes to our lost loved ones, Sometimes I have to battle, you know, just the flesh. God, how could you do this? God, why would you do this? And those things, when those inward thoughts at war are going on, if we don't have nothing in the tank to battle with, I think that's how they linger and then they, like the James passage you quoted, it's like yeah. forced to end you, said Brent said that. Yeah. So that, that was healthy. Yeah, thankfully, God is gracious with us, tender with us. He doesn't cast us. He doesn't treat us like he did Israel in numbers, right? When we are that way. Uh, but he sanctifies us through that. And, you know, that's again, you know, why we don't want to lose that feeling of conviction. Because that would be a bad place. So. All right. Well, we're still dealing with um, the section in the Catechism on Commandments for, I think, three more questions. But I'm pretty sure that those three questions will all be just one question per night. And then we'll get into a new section in the Catechism, which I think, if my memory serves me correctly, will be breaking down the Lord's Prayer. And then after that, we'll um, be wrapping up the Catechism. So. And then what are we going to do? The plan, potentially, is to... Uh, we could maybe watch the Hillsong documentary or something. I don't know. Uh, we could probably... Um, Try to teach you the uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, but that's that's a big. It's all water, baby. So, so anyways. Justin, the book that we already have. It is. All right, guys. Well, it's been a blessing to have this Lord's Day with you all today. So I'm going to stop this recording.